Good evening. Glad you guys are joining us. Welcome. Those of you also on the live stream, we're glad you're here for our third session in our study of the story of Job. And as you know, we are, by the time we get to the end of this, we hope to shed some light and give you kind of think around some of the big questions like when bad things happen to good people, when unjust suffering occurs. We really want to explore those. And as usual, if you have questions during the session, if you want to text them to, uh, to that number, uh, it's also on your handout, I believe. We try to answer as many questions as we can as we go through the session. Well, let me uh, say a prayer for us, and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for the country in which we live, that we are free to gather and to study your word. And Father, we are free at this point to go take your word into our country and into this world. I pray that we might be good ambassadors, that we might represent you well. And when we say that, we know that means to take your compassion and your love and your truth to a world that so desperately needs it. I pray for the leaders of our country, all the leaders of our country, that you would turn their hearts toward you, that you would bless them, that they might be agents of your peace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's see. We, uh, let's do, we are in chapter three. And so our first session, we talked about chapter one. And there's a certain scene that happens there, which I'll kind of revamp here in a moment. Uh, then we did chapter two, which had another powerful scene. We're going to do chapter three in this lesson. Now, there are 42 chapters in the book of Job, so that kind of tells you about how long this is going to go. I'm just kidding. We will pick up speed in a big way here. This will be about six sessions to do justice and let us think about this. I mean, our culture, we'd love to have a Twitter answer. Like, well, just give me the short version right now of why does it make sense for bad things to happen to good people. One of the signs of maturity is that when you realize that complex questions don't often have simple answers. And a simple answer won't stay very long unless we've thought this through. So we, like Job, are going to suffer through a few weeks of trying to answer some of these key questions. Well, if you remember, just a little background, I'll do a very brief review, but this is the world in about 1800 BC, which is about the time that the book of Job, that Job lived. The book of Job was probably written later, but Job lived around 1800 BC. And if you remember, we're talking Abraham in 2000 BC, just to put this in a biblical time frame. And then in about 1400, I'm just using traditional dates, you have Moses. So what's happening in 1800 BC? There's no Israel. There's just the descendants of Abraham, about 70 of them. And they're in Egypt because of a famine. Meanwhile, around this same time, Job lives somewhere up here in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. And this story focuses on what happened to this man, Job. Now, if you remember, Job is, I've said to you before, if he lived today, he'd be the ultimate Christian uh, because of our vision of what we think of the ultimate Christian is. He was devout. I mean, he was dedicated to God. He was, uh, tried to bring his children up to be dedicated to God. He was generous he was affluent, he was influential, he was a force for good in his community. So he kind of, you know, in the American view of Christianity, sort of had it all, right? Well, so he is a just man. In fact, God himself, we learn in chapters one and two, says, Job is an upright man, he is a godly man. So the scene opens in heaven. And after we've met Job, in heaven, God is holding court. At least that's the way it's presented here. I doubt that it literally means that. But basically, you have the angels coming before God in his heavenly court. Think Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is a throne room scene in heaven. And so here come the angels to present themselves to God. And one of the angels is called Satan, actually the Satan. And his name is the Accuser or the adversary. He is an angel, comes before God, and God said, what have you been up to? He said, oh, I've been roaming around the earth here and there, just stirring up trouble, basically. And God says, did you run into Job? He is an upright and blameless man who loves God and hates evil. And so Satan says, you know, he really bugs me. 
because I just don't think that's genuine. And so Satan makes his first accusation. He says, people only serve God. Job is only a good guy in return for the physical blessings that you give. And by the way, this story isn't just about Job. Take you, take me. Satan is making this same accusation, the accuser, against us. He said, you know what? You give them physical blessings. They were born in America, so they're already better off than 99.9% of the people in the world. And you've given them all the conveniences. They've got great medical care. They've been born at a good time in history. And so they're just, they're so hashtag blessed. You know, they're, they're so blessed. That's why they're Christians. That's why they follow you. Well, our story, God says, I don't think so. He said, as a matter of fact, I will, you can do whatever you want to Job. Just don't touch Job. And Satan goes out gleefully. And in the course of a day, we see this in chapter one, basically takes everything Job has. So messengers come in and they say, all your sheep, all your uh, camels, all your donkeys, all your possessions, enemies swooped in, killed your servants and took them all. In fact, your broker's on the line and you had a margin on your futures account and he's calling it and you are broke, broke, broke. You are bankrupt, Job. And same time, messenger comes in and said, your seven sons and three daughters were all having a feast in the oldest brother's house and a tornado came in, knocked the house down and literally all of them died. So this is what this painting is, is trying to capture Job's sense of suffering. And so Job literally loses everything. And what he does is, this is the end of chapter one, he rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, signs of mourning, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has given, uh, taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We talked about this in our first lesson, so I won't stay there, but just to let you know, this is what's happening with Job. Well, scene two, chapter two opens up, scene in heaven. The angels come before God again to present themselves and the Satan, the accuser comes. And God says, you know, you incited me against Job for no reason. In other words, you took everything he had unjustly. God admits this is unjust. He didn't deserve this. But you made an accusation and you were wrong, weren't you? And Satan says, I know, but he said, some people like Job might stick with you if you took their possessions. But really, people serve God in return for immunity from suffering. If you let him suffer personally, you give him cancer, you give him something that suffers and he thinks he's gonna die, he will definitely curse you to your face. So God said, I think you're wrong. I don't think you serve me because of the blessings I give you and I don't think you serve me Job serves me in return for immunity from suffering. And so he says to Satan, just, just don't kill him. And so Satan goes out and he strikes him with sores, it said. Uh, I love this photo. It just so captures the anguish and the despair. He strikes him with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He said he's sitting in the ash heap. Now remember, he's gone from the city gates to the dump. He has nothing left. And it said he's scraping himself and he's just in anguish. He's miserable. He thinks he may die. I mean, no reason. Obviously, at this point, he's lost his medical coverage. And so he thinks, I'm going to die. And he's suffering. And so what happens? Is Satan right? Well, no. In fact, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so that's catching us up right now. Basically, Job has lost everything. Job has, thinks he's going to suffer and then inevitably die, but he just doesn't know how long he's going to suffer. And so we left our story at the end of chapter 2, and this is, a, this is a pretty part. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head. 
Again, signs of mourning. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. That's what's been going on this last week since our last lesson. They've been sitting with Job for seven days. And remember, all the rest of this book, Job looks like that picture. He is suffering this whole time. It's easy for us to go, oh, bad stuff happened to Job. Now let's go see how he deals with it. He's in anguish the whole rest of the book. So you need to remember, he doesn't get an easy reprieve. He doesn't know how this is going to end. You and I get to be in the position of the narrator. We get to see what's happening. We know that Job didn't deserve this suffering. Job's friends don't know that. Job is wrestling with that very question. And so in this lesson, in chapter 3, we're going to see Job's response. But before we do that, and chapter 3 is some of the most beautiful poetry. It's Okay, I'll just tell you, it's depressing. But it's some of the most beautiful poetry in all of literature, and I think in the Bible. It's just powerfully compelling. It's something that we can identify with. I realize that your and my sufferings probably do not rise to the level of Job's, but we, we can sympathize with this when we go through grief, we go through illness, we go through anguish. We can sympathize. Job is every man. Job is every woman. Job is the modern-day Christian wrestling with these same questions. I want to pause for a second, though, and I want to talk about how what you and I are about to see in the story of Job is so very different than the rest of the world and the rest of history. So let me give you some quotes from some of my uh, favorite uh, people. Thomas Hobbes lived, I believe, 1588 to 1679, so think about 17th century for Thomas Hobbes. He said, he's kind of noted for this in the Leviathan, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And you know what? If you lived in the 17th century, that's true. In fact, if you lived anywhere outside the West in the last century or so, that was true. It's still true, unfortunately, in so many places around the world today. And so this idea that life is inevitably going to involve suffering. So he knew that back in the 17th century. In the 20th century, Albert Camus, not a Christian, existentialist thinker, really one of the fathers, he and Nietzsche, probably some of the fathers of modern secular underpinnings of postmodern thought. In other words, most of the people who do not have a Christian worldview, their thinking came from these guys. Camus said something that is just so honest. He opened this, the first sentence in the uh, essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. What is he saying? He's saying, is there any meaning in life? When you hit suffering, is there any point to this whatsoever? In other words, why would you not just commit suicide instead of suffering? Because give me a reason, he's saying. Is there any meaning to life at all? So you see the idea that suffering is inevitable, but there's not an answer for suffering. Friedrich Nietzsche lived, died 1899. The thought of suicide is a great consolation. By means of it, one gets through many a dark night. I mean, that's as good as secular philosophy basically gets when it comes to the question of suffering. Is there any point or purpose or meaning? Is it just random and life is nasty, brutish, and short? And in fact, you ought to just check out when it gets too hard. That worldview underpins a lot of things going on in our world today. You're going to see the idea of abortion touched on, not directly, but very much touched on in here. You will definitely see the idea of euthanasia touched on in this 3,800-year-old story of Job. It really addresses the question of, is life worth living? Is suffering have any meaning whatsoever? In fact, uh, if you lived anywhere besides the West in history, 
you would ask these questions very seriously. The difference for us, and this is what I think makes this difficult for us, this question, why do bad things happen to good people, is throughout most of history, people expected that life would be hard and there would be times of suffering. We no longer ask the question, and so they would ask this question. Tim Keller, by the way, let me give you a book reference that I think you'll really like. Tim Keller wrote a book called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's, it's not about the story of Job, but it's a great biblical way of thinking about suffering. And one of the points he makes, very true, right up front is, in the past, people expected life to be hard at times and to have suffering. And so there would be joyful times, but there would be suffering. They asked the question, how can suffering make me better? What is the meaning of this suffering? In other words, what can I take from this suffering to propel me forward? That's not what we ask in our culture now. We've gotten so used to being able to control some suffering. I mean, we really do live in the most prosperous time. The least prosperous person in the world today is probably the most prosperous uh, person in history. I mean, if you think about the West, we are rich by every comparison. Instead of asking, what can this suffering teach me? We ask the question, why is this happening at all and how can I avoid it? Why is suffering happening at all and how can I avoid it? That's really important. I want you to just file that away because that is part of why we struggle more than anybody in history has ever struggled with this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? In fact, that question would not have been asked at most times in history. They would have said, when bad things happen, just or unjust, what can it teach me? What can I learn? We think that we are immune and we say, why does it even have to happen at all? Why can't life be comfortable? So I want to set that stage for us because as we approach this, we're going to approach it with a little different worldview. And trust me, God has a very different perspective on this than our culture does. So let's see what happens with Job. After this, so after the seven days, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness see it and it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in, the, in the, any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, my birthday. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Okay, we gotta talk about that, he's depressed. This is kind of what you call situational depression. But this is a, this chapter is his speech. This is the first thing he says after all of this has happened and he sat there suffering for seven days and he's been thinking and he's been thinking. And so he comes out and his first point that he wants to make is it would have been better to not be born than to suffer. I mean, think about it, where he is right now and he's thinking back on all the good things that have happened in his life and he goes, but you know what, now, it would have been better to have never been born than to suffer. And that's his first point, that's the first thought, is he's basically assuming that the purpose of existence is comfort. I mean, if you stop and think about it, and we do, we, we often in our culture, at least, I don't know that we as Christians understand the world this way at all, but a lot of people think about the purpose of this life is to be as comfortable as you can. Duh, make as much money as you can, be as healthy as you can, protect yourself as much as you can, you and yours, and if you have to oppress a few other people around the world to do it, then by all means do it. Because my contention is this, that search for comfort in life 
basically is a, a chimera. I mean, in other words, it's, you cannot ever get completely comfortable, but it does lead you to oppress other people to make your life better. If you think about most of the conquest that's happened in the world, it's basically to say our people are going to conquer you and take your stuff and our lives are going to be better. So Job's first thought comes out of this idea that if the purpose of existence is comfort, he says, if that's the case, it would have been better to never be born. And this beautiful poetry, I mean, it's dark, but it's, it's just beautiful. Look at all the darkness in it. There's, there's a, this is not a, a uh, coincidence. Job sees nothing but darkness. One thing suffering does, by the way, suffering shrinks our world. I want you to think about that. Suffering, and this is normal. Suffering shrinks our world. And when we are suffering, when we are challenged, all the other interests and everything, it kind of sinks in. And what Job is saying is, yes, my suffering has so shrunk my world that it's darkness. I see nothing but darkness. If you remember God's first act in creation, think about Genesis 1.1. God said, let there be light. If you think about Jesus, John 1, in the New Testament, it says, and he was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness. That whole idea, there's just a couple of quotes, but if you look, you'll see this idea of light and darkness all through the Old and New Testament. And God understands that in this world, suffering is a form of darkness as it shrinks our world into ourselves and our own problems. If you think about it, that's completely opposite of the Christian life, right? Which Jesus says, I want you to be other-focused. God knows that suffering shrinks our world. And it's not a coincidence that the love of God is portrayed, the truth of God is portrayed, and the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is portrayed as light. So what God is saying is that my good news of the gospel is intended to attack suffering just as it's much as it is to do anything else. I know we sometimes think the gospel, the good news about Jesus is Jesus died on a cross for my sins, raised from the dead, I get to go to heaven. Okay, well, that's, that's a way to think about it. But, you know, there's obviously a lot more going on here. But what I want you to understand is it's not just about you, me, going to heaven. It's about God setting the world right. And this idea of lights, he says, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is actually gonna shed light on the idea of suffering here and now. So let me pause there, kind of at the end of his first speech and see what questions we have. Who is Leviathan? Who is Leviathan? Well, it's the title of the book that Thomas Hobbes wrote. Uh, Leviathan is, that's a long story. I'm gonna give you a short version, but it's not gonna be exactly accurate. But basically, Leviathan was thought of as the beast from the deep. Think Godzilla, okay? So Leviathan is kind of like Godzilla, comes up out of the ocean, says, hey, I'm, I'm really mad, and he kind of tears up the town and all that. Leviathan was a symbol of the forces of destruction. In other words, Leviathan was powerful enemy. So it's being used here basically in that sense, is those who are willing to call forth the powers of destruction in the world. Because Job sees, this is where you shrink the world. Job doesn't say, well, you know, I'm really suffering and I've lost everything, but by and large, the world's doing pretty well and the economy's good, you know, GDP's up a little bit. No, he's not thinking that. The whole world shrinks in and he's thinking, just destroy the whole world. So basically, Leviathan is a symbol of power from the deep that's destructive force. Is there significance to the seven days and nights of silence? Good question. Is there significance to the seven days and nights of silence? It is typically thought of by a lot of commentators that what that meant was, you know, seven is, is always suspect in the Bible. When I say suspect, I mean that it means something. The number seven traditionally has meant the perfect amount of time. So here's the interesting question. Did they sit there for seven days or did they sit there for as long as it took? So if it's telling you that they sat there for seven days, then no, there's no particular significance to the seven. If, however, 
he's trying to say to you, they were willing to sit there as long as it took. Whatever the perfect amount of time was that Job needed, they were going to be there. So it could be indicative that his friends were simply like, Job, we got a lot of other stuff to do, but we're here as long as you need us. So it might be significant of that. It might also just mean seven days. Good question. Well, let's see what comes next. So first, Job says, better not to be born than to suffer. And he's saying, you know, if you think life is comfort, then that's pretty much your conclusion, isn't it? Because at some point, you're going to be weighing, wow, was it worth it or was it not? And Job, having lost everything and having no hope, I mean, he's literally in despair, says, no, it wasn't worth it. Then the next thing that he says, this is the very next verse, he said, well, if I were going to be born, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. He's talking about death. Captives also enjoy their ease. They are no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the greater there, and the slave is freed from his master. So what's Job saying now? He said, well, it would have been better to never be born. But if I was born, why was I allowed to grow up? Why didn't I die at childbirth? In other words, his second point is, it's better to die than continue to suffer. Remember our friends Camus and Nietzsche? And you know, what are they saying? They're saying, honestly, you got to ask the question about suicide. Why would you continue to suffer? And so Job is wrestling in his mind and he goes, well, if I had to be born at all, why was I, not, why was I allowed to live in the midst of suffering? Death, the peace of death, is better than continuing suffering. And so I've got a couple of thoughts about that. I just want you to think this through with me a little bit. You know, obviously suffering shrinks our world. And so when you deal with people who are suffering, when you yourself are suffering, you have to realize that you have lost perspective to a certain extent. Because you may be reading this and you say, look, Job, your life is really hard, but gosh, to kill yourself and just say, well, it's not worth it. Wish I'd never been born. Wish I'd died as soon as I had been born. Maybe suicide is my answer, and at least I'll have the peace of death. You realize that those kinds of talk and reflect a lack of perspective. And I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean that's what suffering does when it shrinks our world. And that's why when you... When you and it's kind of a serious topic, but I want to talk about it for just a minute. Probably many of you have known people that have taken their lives, that have come to a place like this, maybe not for the same reason, but have come to that place of despair, that place of not seeing any hope. And I want you, first of all, just to be understand. And the story of Job says, if you and I were sitting there with Job and our world had shrunk to where his world had shrunk, we too might say these things. The other thing I want to point out, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but when we get to the end of the book, God does not criticize Job for any of these things that he is saying. God doesn't agree with them. God's going to give Job a different answer than maybe suicide is a good idea or maybe never being born is a good idea. God doesn't agree with that. He says that's not true, but he's not angry with Job for wrestling in the darkness of his shrunken world. And I want to just say to you that when you suffer, when you get to a place of maybe even a place of despair or a place where you can see no hope, a couple of things are true. One is God understands that. God understands the wrestling that you're having. You can still pray to God. He has not forgotten you. He is not mad at you for thinking these thoughts. But... He says, I am light in your darkness, and this is not the answer. Here's where you start to get a little bit of a hint of what the book is, wants to talk about. And that is the idea, can suffering have meaning? Can suffering have any kind of purpose? Well, actually, you know that it can. 
that's a question that any rational person would have to say, well, I don't know if his suffering has a purpose, and I don't know if what happened to me last week had a purpose, but I can tell you that clearly suffering can have a purpose. We believe that deeply ingrained as Americans, all the people who have served in the armed forces and put themselves into a war and risked their lives or lost their lives or suffered greatly, they did so. Why do you think that happens? The pay's good? That's not it. What the reason is, they believed that it mattered, that if indeed they suffered in that, it was for a purpose that was greater than just them. I mean, that really is what military service and our veterans who have given their lives or suffered or lost limbs or, or lost family members, that's why they're doing it. They do believe. You can't do that if you don't believe that suffering can mean something more than just what's happening to me. So we do believe that. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, you see it all the time. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, he was persecuting Christians, he was killing Christians, and then he has a confrontation with Jesus in his world, just like yours and mine, maybe more dramatic, but his world is turned upside down. He goes, he's blind, he's led by the hand into Damascus, he's told to go see this man who's a Christian, and God said to this man, uh, Ananias, he said, you need to show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Now he didn't mean that as in, oh, I'm gonna punish you for what you've done, he just said, I've called you, you believe, now you believe. You have seen, you have heard, now you believe. I have a mission for you. Just same mission he had for us. I want you to go tell the world this good news, this gospel. Gospel means good news. I want you to tell them this good news of what I have done. And he says, but Paul, I want to be honest up front. You are not going to have an easy life. So I don't want you to tell me that I lied to you. And sure enough, if you read the book of Acts, you realize that Paul went from life of comfort. He was well-to-do Jewish guy on a fast track and everywhere he went they beat him up and he got up and he went to the next town and he preached again and a lot of people believed and eventually the people that were mad beat him up. He was uh, left for dead, he was beaten with canes, he was imprisoned, he was in shipwreck. He had a life of suffering. Now had he not thought that was worthwhile had he not thought there was a purpose in that, you and I would know so little of this story. If Paul had said, well, you know what? I think I'll just kill myself and at least I won't be suffering anymore. He didn't. He understood suffering to have a bigger purpose. In fact, I want to read you uh, some passages. I'm just going to kind of blitz through these. You can write them down if you want to. Uh, first one is, uh, and these are not all from Paul. I want you to see the whole New Testament understands this. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Here's what Paul said. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now you start to get a God-centered view of this. In other words, God's starting to hint to you that, you know what, you may not understand suffering, you may not understand any given time, but there is a point to this. Paul says, I just think that this is not worth comparing to what we will have, to the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, another interesting passage. This one comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, he's writing to Christians, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, when you suffer, he says, don't be surprised by that. He said, but rejoice, really? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You start to see this idea in the New Testament at least that the suffering that Christ did Oh, and by the way, why would Christ come to earth and suffer for you and me? That is really painful, and there's nothing in it for him. That was for you and me, because there was something greater on the other side. Sometimes suffering is worth it. It was for God, because he so loved you and me that he sent his son to suffer and die. And Paul says, in the same sense that Christ suffered, if I participate in his sufferings, I also will participate in the glory that's revealed in him. One more. This one really hits this exact idea. This is in Philippians. 
He says this, it has been, this is in chapter 129, it has been granted to you, big favor, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only get to believe in him, but you also get to suffer for his sake. That's just a radically different idea, isn't it? That's a long way away from the purpose of life is comfort. He says, oh no, it's essential that you suffer with Christ that you may have the glory formed inside of you. He even prays, he says this, I pray that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So contrary to, and it's, I'm not faulting Job that he can't see this in the middle of his suffering, but God's going to come at this from a very different perspective. He's going to come at it with an unequivocal answer. Two things, suffering has meaning, and secondly, you cannot know the full meaning unless you see the end of the story. And that's why, one of the reasons why, as Job contemplates, why, why am I still alive and suffer? Why do Camus and Nietzsche say, might as well kill yourself? Because they see no meaning, no purpose. God assures us there is purpose in suffering. There certainly is purpose in Job's suffering. It didn't work out so well for Job, but you and I and people for 3,800 years have begun to understand how God understands suffering, that there's purpose in it, and that you don't always know the purpose until you see the end of the story. You've got to let the author write the whole story in our lives before we can understand what might he be doing. Not many people will read a book where they tell you who done it in chapter two, right? There is a reason why novels, stories go somewhere and they tend to resolve at the end. They don't resolve in the middle. So is life. Life doesn't resolve in the middle. Life resolves when the author is through writing your story. And God says, when I finish writing your story, it will be glorious. Do you believe that? That's why the gospel says that how are we saved? By God's grace through trust, faith, belief. Do you believe that? So you're going to see the, the Bible and God come at this from a really different perspective. Now, Job doesn't know that. He's struggling now with how, you know, is this going to work? In fact, it reminds me of a story. This is a true story. So raising our kids, they get to the phase where they basically think you're an idiot. And they're pretty sure they can run their lives and yours better than you can. I remember countless times Laura and I would have this conversation. They would get to those preteen or teen years and they'd start saying, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you let me do this? And then this will be better and it'll all work out better. And you really, I mean, seriously, dad, is there any qualification to be a dad? Was there training for this job? Because you are not getting it right. And my answer, now, Point number one, you cannot argue with a teenager. It's just going to frustrate you to no end. So we would use this short-circuit answer. I'd say, listen, number one, I love you more than anybody on this earth loves you. I don't love you more than God loves you, but I love you more than anybody on this earth loves you. And you know that I want good for you. And it may be that I am wrong, but this is the way we're going to do it. And when you get into your 20s, if you still feel like I told you so, I'll apologize to you. End of discussion. You know, so it's kind of like when you get past this and you look back, if you still think I made a mistake, see, I'm counting on them forgetting at this point. If you still think I made a mistake, I'll apologize to you. And the whole point is, is you can't know because you don't know the end of the story. And I think that's what God is saying to us in this case. Question? So if we don't suffer enough, are we truly living the Christian life? Great question. If we don't suffer enough, are we truly living the Christian life? Okay, I want to take issue. I love the question. We need to talk about this. But I want to take issue with the question because neither your conduct gets you in a right state with God, nor does the amount of your suffering. Do you remember back in the day, and I mean like not, I wasn't alive then, I'm talking centuries ago, where they had the flagellants, 
the people that they wanted to purify themselves and do penance for their sins so they would kind of beat themselves. They would wear these really wool things that just made them go nuts and they would basically put themselves through suffering to do penance, to make themselves right with God. Suffering doesn't make you right with God. Good conduct doesn't make you right with God. So let's start there. Is there a necessity for suffering in order for faith to be fully formed? I say yes, the New Testament teaches that. Is that suffering has a purpose. Oh, does that mean I need to go seek it? No, trust me, it will find you at some point in time. But the Christian idea is when you suffer and you inevitably will. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What's he saying? Well, putting it in our terminology, he's saying, there's gonna be suffering in this world, but I made sure there's meaning. If this life is all you had, you might as well be Nietzsche, you might as well be Camus. But Jesus Christ said, I have overcome death. And consequently, suffering can mean something. That's what he's saying. So he's being very upfront about that. So I do think that a suffering in and of itself, I don't know how much, whatever God brings into our life. For Paul, it was a great amount. For me, honestly, compared to him, it's been small amount. Some of you, also great amounts of suffering. It's not the amount of suffering. It's the fact that as we go through it, God is shaping us. He has a purpose on the other side. So I do believe that suffering is essential. That's one thing we, and I'm just going to say we in Western Christianity over the past 50 years, 100 years, have done a very poor job of is telling people, Christians, what the Bible says about suffering. You can't, you have to, we have to be prepared to suffer. If you just hit, it just hits you out of the blue, you start like Job saying, God, what, what is going on here? I didn't deserve this. I was a good guy. You know, what, what's happening? We need to be prepared to suffer because it is inevitable. And so that's what the New Testament is saying is suffering is needed to form our faith, which is more precious than gold, the scripture says. Good question. So it's not how much. First of all, you will suffer. It's just a matter of how much and when. The point is, what are we going to do with that? The world's asking the question, how can I avoid it? And is there any purpose in it at all? Christians are asking the question, what is God doing here? What can this teach me? What can God do in this uh, situation? And then third thing, he's just, this is going right on through uh, the chapter. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter in soul? To those who long for death and it doesn't come, he's talking about himself. He says, well, I'm not going to kill myself, but God, you can just take me anytime you want to because this is miserable. Who search for death more than for hidden treasure. Who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? What's he saying? He said, I don't see any point in this. I see no way out of it. I'm despair. He has nothing to hold on to. His worldview was, if I'm a good guy, good things will happen. That's what Satan said he believed, but yet he's not willing to let go of God. And so he says, for sighing comes to me instead of food, my groans pour out like water. What's he saying here? First he said, better to never be born than to suffer. Second he said, if you're suffering, it's not worth it. You know, why didn't I just die? Uh, before I ever got to this place. And then thirdly, what he's saying is, why does God even allow us to be born if he knows we're going to suffer? Now, that's an interesting question. Why does God even allow us to be born if he knows that we're going to suffer? Well, let's just logic for a second. This is not a hard, this is not a hard little puzzle. First of all, everybody suffers in life. If God was not going to let you be born because you were going to suffer, nobody would be born. In other words, it's an empty universe and everything's spinning and there's no reason to have created humanity at all. Okay, well, that's not a very interesting universe. And yet, here we are. And so God did see purpose in creating life even though there is suffering. So the question is not, although I respect Job asking it in his narrow little dark world where he is right now, the question is not, why did God allow this to happen with suffering? It's wonder what God's purpose for this is. There must be something so good. God must have something so wonderful that even this pales in comparison. 
That's what Paul said in Romans 8, 18. I consider that these sufferings must not be worth comparing to what God has in mind. There's a huge element of faith that God can make even this right. You know that passage in the book of Revelation is talking about heaven, and it said, God will wipe away all our tears. There'll be no tears there. How can that be if you look back and you say, I suffered like this, I was sad, I was in despair, I was in hope. God must be able to make even that suffering pale in comparison. So these are not easy answers, but I wanna plant a few ideas here as we contrast how Job is thinking and what God has to say in the word. We're gonna keep thinking and reasoning around these ideas. So let me pause for a second for questions and I wanna give you probably the scariest and the biggest uh, verse in this chapter. Yes, question. Is God glorified by our suffering? Is God glorified by our suffering? Again, I think I'll probably take, I like the question. I'll probably take issue with the wording just a little bit is no, God takes no pleasure in our suffering and God is not glorified because we are so low that we do suffer. There's not a sense in my mind that God is glorified in our suffering. What is God glorified in? He is glorified in our awe, our praise, our faith, our trust. I mean, think about it. This is really a small analogy, but let's go back to the children thing again. So I, I was like going for dad of the year this one year. I mean, I was doing so well. And so I was going to teach kids how to swim. So got my son standing on the edge of the pool. I'm standing and, you know, water's up to here, so I'm not going to drown, but he might. And so, you know, water's like up to here. So I look at him and I say, go ahead and jump. And I see already the flickerings of intelligence in his eyes. And he starts to calculate, you know, dad hadn't been right about everything. And this sure looks dangerous to me. And so the point is, what in that sense made me feel good as a dad? What made me feel good was when he decided, I trust you, I'm going to jump, even though eh, not so sure you're going to actually catch me, but I'm going to jump. God is glorified by our trust, our childlike trust and faith in him. Not by the suffering per se, but you know what? Suffering often brings out that great childlike trust and faith. So, good, very good question. Okay? Last verse of this chapter. This is how he sums it up. He said, I, you know, I don't understand God. I think it would have been better never to be born than to suffer like this and lose everything. Or if I did have to be born, why couldn't I have died as a child? Why get to this point? And finally, you know, the question of God, really, for anyone at any time, why would you have ever let me be born when you knew this was in front of me? Yeah, it was, I had children and I had joy and I had so many good things and I followed you and our, my life was just in harmony, but now it's not. And here's how he sums it up. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. I have pondered that verse. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me for decades. I mean, it just haunts me a little bit. In this sense, I understand why he's saying that. He sits there in his misery and he goes, this is probably what I feared most in the world, and it has happened. And so I have a couple of questions for you to think about. One is, what do you fear most in the world? What do you dread the most? That's worth thinking about, and I've thought about that for a lot of years. If I were Job and I were saying, what do I fear the most in life? What do I dread the most in life? What is the worst that could happen to me in life? That's worth thinking about. And I thank God for the story of Job that brings that question. And the rest of the book is going to be trying to figure out how to deal with that. But I really want you to think about it and answer it for yourself. What do you most fear? What do you most dread? And then the second question I have is, what would you give to be free of that fear? 
to be free of that dread? What do you most fear, and what would you give to be free of that fear? Does that make sense? You'd probably say, you know, I'd probably give anything to be free of that fear. But that's probably not true. Do a little thought experiment. Let's suppose for a moment. I mean, it's a more difficult question than you think, but it's really, you're really going to learn a lot about yourself thinking about it. Let me give you a thought experiment. So you, everybody that you love, your uh, insurance agent, your wife, your husband, your kids, whatever. I don't know if you love your insurance agent, but maybe you do. And so all the people that you love. And here's the, here's the thought experiment. They can have lives of comfort. Okay, this is a thought experiment. It's not true. But what if they could have the rest of their lives in ease and comfort and basically everything would go pretty well for them until they died peacefully in their sleep at 114? If you suffer like Job for the rest of your life, would you take that deal? Isn't that an interesting thought experiment? Would you take that deal? I can see some of you going, no way. Now, seriously, you're all thinking seriously like, that's a good point. Would I suffer for the rest of my life if the people who mean most to me could not suffer? You're probably thinking, yeah, I think I might. And so here's my point. It's not quite so easy to say, what would you give if what you feared most could not happen? Because actually, there are things you would give up. Does that make sense? There are things worth it to you to suffer. So I realize that's not exactly a great way to end our lesson, but I want you to, and we're not done exactly, but I want you to think about that a little bit because that's where Job is. You and I and Job, for the next week, we're going to sit with him and in the suffering, and we're going to think, what I feared most has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. What do I do now? Fortunately, I pray, we are not in that situation. But I really like you to think about that a little bit. And then what would you give to have that not happen? And next time, I'm going to give you the answer to that. There actually is something you can do. I've thought about this for decades, so I'm not telling you I'm smart. I'm just telling you I've really chewed on this idea. There actually is an answer to what you can do to make sure that what you fear does not come upon you and what you dread does not happen to you. But you have to wait till next week to find out. And next week, we will meet Job's friends. They all think they have an answer to that question, and I think you'll find them pretty interesting. You might even see yourselves in some of those questions. So, I realize this lesson is more about thinking as opposed to an easy takeaway, but I do want to remind you, suffering shrinks our world. And one of the things you and I can do for people that are suffering, in one sense, Job's friends were really nice. In another sense, they weren't. Because Job sits there as his world closes in. Sometimes you just need to reach into their world and take their hand and say, it's not all dark. So next time, we'll talk about what do you dread most and what can we do to make it not happen. I'll see you guys next time.